You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Uh, If I haven't ever met you, my name is Norm. Great to have you out. I, I want you to, if you have your Bibles with you, take them out, turn to... 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're a guest or you haven't been around for a while, we are in this series on this letter, Paul's first letter, at least the first one that we have, first letter to this church in Corinth. We've finished chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, but as I said last week, we're jumping ahead and we're going to be entering an Easter series we're calling Raised, where we're going to spent a lot of time in chapter 15 looking at the resurrection of, of Jesus. Uh, if you don't know a lot about the book of, Re- uh, book of Revelation, book of 1 Corinthians, it, um, 1 Corinthians 15 is extraordinary. It really is. It, is, it encompasses the Bible, Bible's deepest dive into the investigation of the resurrection of Jesus. So it does a deep dive. It's It's the Bible's longest chapter on the subject, Um, but what is beautiful about it is it takes time to talk about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus for you and me individually and the church. How important is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, all of Christianity rests on it. If, If the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't take place, then Christianity is a worthless faith. As I said last week, if Jesus didn't rise bodily from the grave, listen to nothing else he said, which I know for some of you that may sound harsh. You may wonder why. I mean, after all, don't we still have his great teaching? If he didn't rise from the dead, well, what you have is you have have a teaching of a liar. You have a teaching of a cruel liar. Um, Because it's one thing to say, as Jesus said several times, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise on the third day. He said that a number of times. And it's one thing to say that. But it's another thing altogether to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And that if you believe in me, even though you die physically, you will live. If that is not true, meaning his resurrection isn't true. That is a cruel, cruel statement. So that's why I say, don't listen to anything else he said. But as I also said last week, if he did rise from the dead, then the next thing out of our mouths should be, you are Lord. No other options, really. Um, Additionally, it's the resurrection that differentiates Christianity from all other religions, all other faiths, all other philosophies, ideologies. Uh, Muhammad is dead. You can go to his grave in Saudi Arabia. Confucius is dead. You can go to his grave in Khufu, China. Joseph Smith, the father of the Mormon faith, the Latter-day Saints, he is dead. You can go to his grave. He's in Illinois. Steve Jobs, a lot of people worshiped Steve Jobs. He is dead. He's buried in California. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates are dead. Oprah is going to die one day. 
Christianity is the only faith that says that not only did God come, but that he died and he rose. But what proof is there for it? Well, that takes us to our text. If you like taking notes, let me begin by giving the first piece of evidence for the resurrection, and that is the Corinthians themselves. Uh, What evidence is this? Well, this is the evidence of radically transformed lives. As we saw last week, and this takes us back to verses 1 and 2, we're going on and looking at verses 3 to 11 today, but Paul begins this chapter by reminding his readers of the gospel. He says, I preach the gospel to you, and you received it. You stand in it, and you are being saved by it. That's fantastic. That the Corinthians were transformed by the gospel, had come out of spiritual blindness, come out of paganism, or perhaps came out of the darkness and legalism and religiosity of Judaism was evidence of the saving work of the gospel. But as I asked last week, I'll ask again today, what is the gospel? The answer I gave last week was the gospel is the person and work of Jesus. But what if you only have 30 seconds with someone? And they ask you, what is the gospel? I want to know what the gospel is. What would you say? Well, that's what our text answers. Verses 3 to 11. But before looking at the specifics and giving us the specifics of the gospel, Paul begins by telling them something else. And that is, and again, if you like taking notes, that first, he received the gospel. Now, why is that important? It's important because it tells us that Paul didn't make up the gospel. As he says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, which again means he didn't make it up, but it was given to him. By whom? Who gave Paul the gospel? Well, he answers in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, where he writes there, for I would have you know, brothers, sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he tells us. He received the gospel. Didn't make it up. He received it. But secondly, what he received, he passed on. I delivered to you what I also received. Paul was a conduit. He was given. He passed it on. This too should remind us of last week where Paul said in verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, sisters, of the gospel, I preach to you which you receive. This is to be our model too. What we receive, we are to pass on. To borrow imagery from the last couple of years, we have been entrusted with a vaccine that can cure the worst of viruses and no booster shots either. One dose will do the trick. The gospel entrusted to us as we receive it will cure us of the vilest of of diseases. That is our call. Remember when COVID started and everybody started to uh, hoard toilet paper? Remember that? Like I remember March of 2020, going to Save On Foods on the UBC campus, and I walked down the paper towel aisle, nothing there. It was amazing. It was kind of terrible, right? As long as I got my toilet paper, I don't care if you have toilet paper. 
I'll hoard my toilet paper, thank you very much. There are a lot of gospel hoarders in the church today. I've got mine, but not worried about you. Why? Why would we not share what saves us and saves everybody else? And there's so much of it to go around, enough for everybody. So Paul, he received it, he passed it on. Third thing to note is that what he received and what he passed on is not to be messed with. Uh, I take this out of a number of different texts that, that we see in the New Testament. But just to note, um, the gospel story doesn't begin with once upon a time. It, it's an account about a moment in history. It's a good news story of an event that took place at a certain time in a certain place. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a nursery rhyme. It's not a legend. It's not a, a fable. Uh, Jude chapter 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The gospel is written in PDF, not Word. Permanent marker, not dry erase. It's not to be messed with. But what do we need to know about the gospel specifically that we can share in 30 seconds if necessary? Well, what we need to know first as we go back to our text is that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 again, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Five words. Christ died for our sins. So much in those five words. First, Paul says that Christ died. And he says that Jesus is the Christ who died. He uses that title. It's a specific title. Christos, Messiah, uh, anointed one. Jesus the Christ died. He died. Not just anyone died. The Messiah died. The eternal Christ died. The Son of God died. The second person of the Trinity died. The very God of very God died. And it had to be him who died. If I died for your sins or you're wanting to die for my sins, that's not good news. He had to die. The Christ had to die. Why? Let me give you some reasons why. First, for a blameless and spotless sacrifice was needed. Some of you know this, in leading up to the time of Jesus, when sacrifices were given and they took animals and sacrificed them, they had to be the best of the herd, the best of the lot. They had to be spotless, blemish-free. Why? It was a foreshadowing. It looked ahead to a time when a Messiah would come and that Messiah had to be sinless, spotless, blemish-free. And that was Jesus. Jesus is that one. Peter writes that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So I can't die for you because I'm not spotless. You can't die for me because you're not spotless. Jesus can and did because he's spotless. Second reason why, for one representing mankind was needed. Enter Jesus. Again, leading up to the time of Jesus, people were called to sacrifice animals to God for their sins. 
So the animal stepped in in your place. Blood was shed for your sins. But fast forward to the book of Hebrews and the author of Hebrews writes that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away our sins. Why not? Because we're not a bull or a goat. And therefore, only one of us, one of our own kind, one who is not ashamed to call us brother, would suffice. Jesus found in very nature man, but in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, satisfied that legal, legal requirement. Third reason, for one representing God was needed. So one representing man was needed, one representing God was needed, and that one had to be spotless. Enter Jesus. Jesus was sent from the Father to bring us to the Father. No, no mere human would do. That's why Jesus is called our mediator. He's our advocate. He's our high priest. Jesus is the one who stands in the gap between us and God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God, only one, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, speaking of his humanity, the Christ, speaking of his divinity, Jesus, speaking of his mission. He saves us from our sins. How many mediators? One. One God, one mediator. One name, one path, one gate, one door, one shepherd. Jesus. Only name under heaven that saves men and women is the name of Jesus. No other name. That is why we exist to make Jesus known. Why would we exist for any other reason? If there's only one name that saves. He, he brings us to the Father. When we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name we pray, we are declaring that it is only by Jesus that we can confidently go before the Father. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say I was at home in my house and I knock on the door, go to the front door, 19, 20-year-old kid standing there, and he says to me, I'm a friend of your son. And your son said to me that if I'm ever going through a hard time, you'll take me in. Allow me to have a shower, perhaps crash in your guest room, maybe fix me a sandwich, take care of me. My answer would be to him, you're a friend of my son? Yes, I'm a friend of your son. You have a relationship with my son? I have a relationship with your son. You're coming to me in the name, his father, you're coming to me in his name? That's right. Come on in, man. You're a friend of my, if you're a friend of my son, you're a friend of me. Come on in, boldly, but humbly, because I'm his father, boldly. Come in, I'll fix you a sandwich. You can shower, get you clean towels, because you're coming in my son's name. That's why we pray what we pray, because it's a declaration. I'm going to the Father because of the Son. The Son has brought me to him. 
Peter writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, 3, that they know you, the Father. That's eternal life. Going to heaven forever, that's not eternal life. It's great. It's a part of it. Having your sins forgiven, it's not eternal life. It's great. It's part of it. Eternal life, salvation, is having a relationship with the Father because of the Son he sent. So back to this, our text, not just anyone died, Jesus the Christ died, but why did he die? A lot of people ask this question, why did he die? Well, he died to set an example for us. Is that true? Yeah, it is true, actually. 1 Peter 2.21 says, Jesus suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. So that's a true, that's a, that's a right answer. He, he died to set an example for us. Any other reasons? Well, because people hated him. So they killed him. It's true too. Religious leadership of the day, out of envy, plotted against him, arrested him, and killed him. So that's another reason. He died because people hated him. Another reason is because Pilate was afraid of the crowds. That's a true statement too. The crowds wanted to crucify Jesus. Pilate's like, what has he done? Crucify him, crucify him. His whole job, Pilate, as the governor, was to keep the peace. He didn't want the Romans on his case, so he said, take him. I wash my hands, take him. So that's another reason that Jesus died. How about the fact that he was sold out? and betrayed by his followers, specifically Judas. It's another reason why, why he died. Yeah, that's true too, for 30 pieces of silver, as we know, which is equivalent today to about 3,000 bucks, top end. So all of those are reasons why Jesus died, but none of those are reasons of first importance. Of first importance, going back to our text, is that Christ died for our sins because they needed to be died for. The wages of sin is death and Jesus paid that wage with his. And only he could. He is the Christ, spotless, blemish-free. His death, his death satisfied the wage of all humanity's sin. And only he could do that. Our sin incurs a ransom. Jesus funded it with his blood. Our sin brings debt. That debt was nailed to the cross with Christ. Jesus substituted himself in our place for our sins to bring us to God. This is referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal penalty paid substituted him for us Atonement at one meant at one with the Father. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. This gets ridiculed a lot today. But the scriptures are really clear. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. 
Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, he bore our griefs. He was pierced for our transgression. What Paul says next about the gospel, go back to verse 4 if you don't mind, is that not only did Christ die for our sins, but verse 4, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the resurrection. Jesus was raised on the third day. What, what role does the resurrection play in the gospel story? Well, it gives it its power. That's the role it plays. Remember Paul's cry in Philippians 3, I want, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, but understand where is that power sourced from ultimately? Well, Paul answers in another place, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power for salvation for everyone one author puts it this way, just as the heart pumps life-giving blood in every part of the body, so the reality of the resurrection gives life to every area of gospel truth. So that's the 32nd version of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day was raised up. I would add to thereafter that he ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father where all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He rules to the honor and glory of his Father and he's returning one day. That's the gospel. Coles knows version of the gospel. But what evidence is there for it? By the way, I have a training night this Wednesday where I'm gonna dive deeper into this question. What evidence is there for the gospel? Can we be assured of the, of the gospel story? Well, I've given you one piece of evidence already. That's the Corinthians themselves. But a second are the scriptures. Paul uses the phrase, you probably picked it up in verses three and four, in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. Their Bible, that's their scriptures. How does the Old Testament speak about the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Well, it speaks of it in different ways. Directly, it'll speak to it. Indirectly, literally, also in figures of speech. For example, on the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter's preaching, and he refers to Psalm 16 saying that David foresaw and wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, during his ministry, is asked by his skeptics, hey, Jesus, man, we, we want a sign from you. And he says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. The only sign I'm going to give to you guys, the only sign is the sign of Jonah. That just like Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days, three nights, so too the son of, the ma son of man will be three days and three nights in the earth. The scriptures point to Jesus. Jesus himself says that in John chapter 5. The scriptures point to me. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus taught the disciples from the scriptures all things concerning himself. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus takes the Passover meal and he makes it all about himself. He takes the bread and he says, see this bread in my body. He takes the cup and he says, this is my blood that's being poured out for you. Jesus 
in his ministry said one time, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. Those scriptures. Midtown, the life and, and work of Jesus in the New Testament isn't a new story. It's a fulfilling one. A third piece. Dude, by the way, understand how would, how would I put this? You can tell it's not in my notes. The importance, what Paul says here about the scriptures, the important role and, and the light he is shining on the scriptures. Because the scriptures say this must take place. Therefore, it has to take place because the scriptures are the word of God and the word of God never returns empty. Jesus died, Jesus rose according to the scriptures because the scriptures, which are the word of God, said it would take place. A third piece of evidence about the resurrection are the appearances. Take a look at verses five to seven. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles. Uh, let's just stop there. So he appeared after he rose from the dead. Who does he begin with? Paul says he appeared to Cephas. This is Peter. This is Simon. Simon named Peter by Jesus. Petros means rock in, in Greek. Cephas, Cephas means rock in Aramaic. So this is Peter. We don't know when he appeared to Peter. We just know that it was sometime after he, re he revealed himself to Mary. But Peter was the first of the apostles to see Jesus post-resurrection. But where was where did we see Peter last in the story of the cross? We saw Peter last denying Jesus. That's where we saw him last. But Jesus goes to Peter first. One author writes, in going to Peter first, Jesus emphasizes his grace. Peter was, had forsaken the Lord, but the Lord hadn't forsaken Peter. Second, he, he appeared to the twelve. Uh, even though Judas wasn't a part of this group, the, the apostles are referred to as the 12, uh, the 12 disciples. Uh, it was on Resurrection Sunday that we read, and you can read this behind me, that Jesus came and, and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. But do you know what testifies and bears witness that Jesus appeared to the disciples post-resurrection? Well, what testifies to this appearance is that they went from being overwhelmed with fear, hiding behind locked doors, to boldness and courage, and for all of them, except perhaps John, to martyrdom in horrific ways that I'll talk about on Wednesday if you... You want to hear more about that. What changed? What changed? Well, only one, one thing makes sense, and that is the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. Hiding to martyrdom. Only one thing makes sense, the resurrection. 
You know what didn't change them? Jesus' miracles before the cross. Jesus' teaching before the cross. Jesus' claims before the cross. Are those things not important? Of course they're important. But the yes and amen of his teachings, his claims, his miracles, find that yes and amen in the resurrection. That's what gave them courage. Because at that moment in time, not only was it revealed to them that Jesus was who he said he was, but more, not more importantly, as importantly, excuse me, as importantly, they knew in that moment that his resurrection is going to be their resurrection. So who cares if man kills me? It only gets better after that. That's what changed. And yes, the skeptic does say that people do die for lies all the time. And that's true. People fly planes into buildings for things that aren't true. But, but what people won't do is die for something that they know to be false. Especially when they have nothing to gain and everything to lose by perpetuating a myth. Kenneth Scott, he's a historian. He taught at Yale University. He says this, it was the conviction of the resurrection of Jesus which lifted his followers out of the despair into which his death had cast them and which led to the perpetuation of the movement, movement begun by him. But for their profound belief, in other words, because of their belief in the resurrection, that the crucified Christ had risen from the dead and they had seen him and talked with him, if they didn't believe that, if they didn't see that Jesus, the death of Jesus and even Jesus himself would probably be all but forgotten. Next, Jesus appeared to the 500, 500 plus. We don't know who this group of 500 brothers were. We just know... Uh, that they're mentioned here is key for two reasons. One, it, it removes the hallucination theory that some people give, that people were so overwhelmed with sorrow that they saw things. Appearing to 500 at one time takes away that idea. Perhaps one person would, perhaps two, perhaps hallucinated, but not 500. If that's the argument, can't be 500. That can't happen to 500 at the same time. But secondly, it also is key because Paul says that although some of them have died, this group of 500, 20 or so years later, this letter is written after the resurrection of Jesus, he says most are still alive. In other words, ask them yourself. Remember what's going on in the Corinthian church. There's some in the church who says, said, there is no resurrection of the dead. That's the whole point of this chapter, at least a big portion of this chapter. And so Paul says, hey, go talk to them. They'll tell you. Don't take my word for it. Talk to Jimmy. He was there. I don't know if Jimmy was there. Probably not in the Middle East at that time. Not a lot of Jimmys. But again, a lot of skeptics, a lot of pushback on this stuff. I mean, 20, 25 years is a long time. Perhaps their memory clouded a bit. I get it. I got married 28 years ago. I've forgotten a lot about my wedding day. 
If you were to ask me questions about the cake or what we ate or even who was in my wedding party, probably would take a while for me to remember. But one thing I do know about my wedding day, Nicole was there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was a big part of the day. Like I may not remember about anybody else. No, she was right there. I said, if you saw the resurrected Jesus, I don't care how long time went by, you'd remember that. Some of the arguments against the resurrection of Jesus are somewhat, there's holes in them. That's how I'll put put it that way. The next appearance is James. James, verse 7. Who is James here? This is most likely James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James, who became the, a leader, key leader in the early church in Jerusalem. James, who wrote the book that bears the name James. What stands out about this is that James wasn't a disciple. And unlike the disciples, James was a skeptic. He, he thought his brother Jesus, it says in Mark 3, was out of his mind along with the rest of his family. And yet something happened that changed James' mind, moving him from skeptic to one day martyr. And that's something, it doesn't make sense if it was anything else but the resurrection. What else, what else would move a disbelieving brother to beginning the book of James by calling himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul mentions the apostles again in verse 7, most likely a reference to Jesus' teaching of the apostles in that 40-day period between his resurrection and ascension. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. Thomas Arnold, uh, historian as well, uh, he, taught, he taught out of uh, uh, Oxford, excuse me, he says this, thousands and tens of thousands have gone through the evidence which attest the resurrection of Christ piece by piece as carefully as ever a judge summed up on the most important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fitter evidence of every kind than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and he rose from the dead. There's one other witness Paul points to, and we'll begin wrapping up with this. And that's Paul himself. Take a look at verses 8 to 10. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Can I say this as well as a side? Can we be careful what we post about churches just as an aside, like it's the church of God. Hold people accountable, no problem. I have no problem. But Paul's like, man, I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. 
So really quickly, uh, Paul was last of all, he says, to see the risen Christ. Jesus revealed himself to Paul, as we know, and Paul was going to Damascus to arrest Christians there. But he didn't reveal himself to Paul post-resurrection, but post-ascension. And he revealed himself while Paul was an unbeliever. That stands out. Probably only James was, at least included in this group, was an unbeliever at the time as well. Paul writes as well that he was untimely born. What does this mean? Well, it speaks of him coming to salvation and being instituted as an apostle after Jesus' ascension. He didn't believe in Jesus, probably never saw Jesus. Jesus did most of his ministry in Capernaum. Paul, I do not believe because of his status and his titles, was in Capernaum. Maybe he heard about Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last time, but he didn't believe in Jesus, didn't follow Jesus, didn't see Jesus. Additionally, Paul refers to himself not only as the last of the apostles, but the least of the apostles. Why? Well, because he persecuted the church. This is what Paul says when he calls himself chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1. Why? Because he persecuted the church. Was Paul plagued with guilt? No. He, he knew his sins were forgiven. But he was plagued with remembrance. And I, I think we probably can resonate with that. Plagued with remembrance, not guilt. He wasn't handcuffed by his past, but he did remember. He did remember it. But you know what he also remembered? Verse 10. How the abundant grace of Jesus extended to him freedom from his past. He understood that only by the grace of God was he what he was. Paul, and nothing else makes sense than this coming because of Jesus appearing to Paul post-resurrection, post-ascension. Paul went from persecuting to persecuted. He, he went from church destroyer to church planter. He went from killing Jesus' followers to bearing on his body the marks of Jesus. Why? Because the resurrected Jesus saved him. And that salvation wasn't wasted for the grace that saved Paul, strengthened Paul, and sustained him too, for that's what, that's what grace does. If you have only 30 seconds to tell someone about the gospel, yes, tell them that Jesus died for their sins. Tell them that he was buried in, in the grave and he rose on the third day. Tell them that. But please, if you're going to tell them that, make sure you also tell them about the grace of God that is the gospel. For the gospel is the grace and the kindness of God towards you and me because of his son Jesus who died in our place for our sins but reigns forevermore. Paul sums up his thoughts and I'll sum up my thoughts with them in verse 11 when he says, whether then it was I or they, speaking of the apostles, so we preach and so you believed. This is why we preach this here too so that you will believe, and by believing, you will be saved. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus the Christ died for your sins, was buried and raised on the third day? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he ascended? Do you believe that he exists now in bodily form, 
reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And if you do, can I ask a follow-up question? What difference has it made in your life? Like the the gospel, the resurrection, as we've seen here, changes everything. Has it changed everything? Or are you still hiding behind locked doors? Still handcuffed, still overwhelmed? Or has it changed you into a person of courage and conviction? Where your calling now is so certain, your future is so certain, because the resurrection of Jesus is just the first fruits. We're the harvest that follows if you're in Christ. As I close, we celebrate, as you know, the resurrection of Jesus in two ways at Midtown every week. One of those is we gather on a Sunday. Um, The church gathers on the Sunday. Most churches gather on the Sunday around the world because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead, which is another huge piece of evidence bearing witness of the validity of the resurrection that they changed these Sabbath-keeping groups of people, many of them changed from Sabbath day, Saturday, to Sunday is a huge piece of evidence. And second, we obviously, the communion meal. And in a verse that I read last week, I'll read again as we move into a time of response. Paul writes in chapter 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So many great words in that verse, but one that really stands out is the word until. Because that word until tells us this isn't just a meal of remembrance. It's a meal of celebration. It's a meal of expectation. It's it's a meal of anticipation because he's coming again. And I don't know about you. I was talking with my mother-in-law and wife after the first gathering. I find myself praying more and more and more nowadays. Jesus, just come back. Please just come back. This is nuts. As I said last week, this is nuts. Just come back. He's alive and he's returning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reality and the veracity of the resurrection of your son, Jesus the Christ. I thank you for the miraculous change it made in the Corinthians and the apostles, and I thank you for the power it has brought to change so many of us who are here today. Father, because of your abundant grace, I ask that we would know more that power in us, that power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I pray that same power would bring greater passion to sharing the saving message of the gospel to those who have not yet heard it and received it, that we would not be people who hoard it, but pass it on. In Jesus' name, in the Son's name, we come to you, Heavenly Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, 
please go to midtownchurch.com.